You're listening to a presentation of The Rising, a community of faith, a church designed to see people far from God raised to true life. We're always encouraged to know God is changing lives through this ministry. If you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know and send an email to stories at wearetherising.com. Now, prepare your heart and mind to hear a word from God. Well, hey, I want to share something real quick about something that took place last week uh, that was really extraordinary, and uh, I want to make you aware of it. Maybe you didn't know, or, or perhaps I'd, you just need to be reminded of this so that we don't take this for granted, uh, but last week, we had uh, the highest, th- th- let me see if I said this right, we had the second highest attendance on a non-holiday Sunday that we've ever had before, okay? Now, let me, let me explain that a little bit, because it might sound confusing. Uh, when I say a non-holiday Sunday, I mean not Christmas or Easter. On Christmas or Easter, that's when people go to church. Uh, Christmas Eve, we had 264 people come. Easter, we had 326. It was amazing. But I say non-holiday, because not, not regular Sunday, because no Sunday is a regular Sunday. Are you with me? So not a regular Sunday, but a non-holiday Sunday. Our record is this, 176 people. That took place last year in October, but last week, we were three people away. We had 173 people, which is phenomenal, and if you weren't here, come on, we could have broken it if you were here, all right? But but here's what that tells me. It tells me a few things. One is um, that you make the house of God a priority, and, and I love that. This... You have to understand, this doesn't happen, okay? Uh, Typically, in the middle of summer, it's middle of July, church attendance goes down, right? It doesn't go up because people are going on vacation. It's a nice day, so people go to the beach. But you were here last week, and so what that tells me is that you make the house of God a priority. You're saying, I'll go to the beach later. I'll go have a picnic later because this is important. So that's that's the first thing. So I want to thank you for being here and making this a priority. The second thing it tells me is this, is that... Uh, you're being a bringer, that you're bringing people to come and experience what God is doing here. And so I just want to thank you for being a bringer and making this house a priority by being here last week. And, and, and here's what I believe. We're going to break that record before our one-year anniversary. We got a one-year anniversary coming up in about 10 months, and I think, I think we can break it. I think we can break all the rules and see an upward trend in our growth as a church instead of a downward trend during the summer. Are you with me? All right, we're in this together. Good, because I can't do it on my own now. Here's the second thing I want to point out to you. Last week, and I want you to hold your applause on this, last week we had five people get baptized. Now, we started as a church about 10 months ago. Our one-year anniversary is coming up. We started September 14th. We're celebrating on September 13th because that's when Sunday is. But so far, we've seen 41 people get baptized. Watch. That's just under one person per week since we launched. That does not happen in brand new churches. Most churches that have been established for years never see that many people baptized in one year. But here's what I believe. What if by our one-year anniversary... We saw 52 people get baptized, one person for every single week of the year. Wouldn't that be something? I think we can see it. I think we can see it. And so I just, 
Man, I'm just so excited about the things that God is doing in this church. I'm so glad I get to be a part of it, and I'm so glad that, that you're a part of this movement as well. I just can't wait for the day when we have so many people that we can't fit everybody in here. We got to fill up the balcony with people, and then we say, all right, it's time to do a second worship experience. I just can't wait, and that day is coming because we're just getting started. We're just getting started, yeah. So I want to, uh, in this sermon today, uh, this, is a, this is a note-taking sermon that I'm going to give you. So I want to invite you to take out your programs. You're going to take some notes, uh, and you're not going to have enough room to write all the notes that you're going to want to take. So write small. I've warned you ahead of time. Write small. Uh, I want to tell you about one of the greatest things that, that, that ever was invented. But before I do that, let me ask you, have you ever been looking for something and uh, you couldn't find it, but then you realized that it was right in front of your face the whole time? Like, it was there the whole time. You, you were searching for it, and it was there the entire time. You just didn't know it. You weren't aware of it. I want to tell you about one of the greatest inventions ever. Uh, it's on the Starbucks app. Uh, I don't know if y'all have the Starbucks app. If not, you should download it. It's amazing. They only pay me $500 to say that. But No, I'm just joking. I'm not paid to say that. I knew that preacher was crooked. No, I'm not. Uh, but... <laughs> The Starbucks app is great. In the Starbucks app, though, they've created this feature, which is amazing. It's a mobile ordering feature. And so now what you can do is in the Starbucks app, you can uh, go in and you can order the drink that you want to your specifications, all the modifications that you'd like in the drink. You put the drink in and you can order it from your phone. Then you can pay for it on your phone and select the store that you want to pick it up to. It'll even tell you what stores are close by so you can uh, have it ordered at that, at that store. Then what you do is you drive to that store. You don't have to wait in line. You don't have to go through the drive-thru. You just walk right in and your drink is sitting there for you on the bar. You go in, grab it, say thanks, and walk out. Done. You've ordered your drink. It's amazing. It, it, it's the greatest thing ever. If you're not using that feature, don't, because it's faster for me, right? So like, but, but, but it's an amazing feature. And so last week, my wife and I, we were on our way here to the Norva uh, early in the morning. Uh, it was 740. And so we had about 10 minutes before we had our volunteer rally here. We get here at uh, 7.50. We have a rally together as, as uh, people who serve. And then we come in, we set up, we, we serve, and then we tear down. If you're not serving right now, I want to highly encourage you to get involved, to make church more than just a chair, but get involved and be a part of what God is doing behind the scenes. You'll, you'll love it so much more than you do now. Uh, but it was 7.40. We had 10 minutes to get here. And there was a problem in our house earlier that day. See, we had run out of coffee, uh, which is a, a big no-no. Like, we should never run out of coffee in our house. But we did. We, we just didn't keep up with the inventory, whatever it was. And so we didn't have coffee. And so we said, all right, I, we got to get our, our coffee this morning. And uh, so we decided to go to Starbucks. It's 7.40. We open up the mobile app. We order our drinks. Uh, we, and we chose to get it from the downtown Norfolk Starbucks right over here. Um, and so we put the order in. We drive up to the downtown Norfolk Starbucks, and uh, my wife, I pull up in front, and my wife, Irene, she goes in to get the drinks. Well, the problem is she goes in, but she doesn't come right back out with the drinks. And, and instead, she, she's in there, and she waits a minute, which is unusual. This doesn't happen. I mean, you've ordered it ahead of time. They have plenty of time to make it, and the drinks are there. You just go in, grab them, and leave. But she's standing there, and then two minutes go by. 
And then four minutes go by, and several people are grabbing their drinks and walking out. You know, they, people who have stood in line, ordered their drinks, and now they're done, and then they're walking out. And so this, this is a problem. And then Irene speaks up to the barista after about the eighth person walked by. And, and I'm in the car. Time is passing. We got to get here for the rally because um, we got to be on time. And she speaks up to the barista. She said, hey, did you get a mobile order? And the barista said, oh, yeah, they've been ready five minutes ago. They're right here, and they were behind the bar. He grabs the drinks and puts them out, and then she grabs them. She comes back into the car. She said, babe, you'll never believe this. The drinks were already ready. I was just waiting the whole time. They were already there. I said, thanks, hon. You just gave me an illustration for my sermon. And uh, because, because we were there, and what we were there for was already there, we just didn't know it. We weren't aware of it. Today, I want to show you something that is in your possession, something that you already have, but you may not be aware of it. So I want to remind some of you today that you have it. For others, I want to reveal to you today that this thing has been in your possession the whole time. Today, we're continuing the series we've been in called Summer of Love. We started it last week, and uh, this isn't a, a romantic series. It's not a dating series, but it's a series about love as we see it in the scriptures. And uh, today, we're going to look at a famous chapter of the scriptures known as the love chapter. Uh, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you want to get a head start, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, but it's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And this is a chapter that probably many of you have already heard uh, because it's a chapter that's read at a lot of weddings. Uh, a lot of times, couples request that this chapter be read at their wedding. I just performed a wedding this past Friday, and I read from this chapter. Uh, but what's interesting about the content in this chapter is that it's not... Uh, romantic love that Paul is writing about. Instead, it's just kind of like a, a general sort of love. And, and here's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, he gives us a list of love. He tells us what love is and then also what love isn't. Because here's the thing. All of us in this room, each and every one of us, we all love love, right? I mean, everybody loves love. Uh, but if I were to ask you to describe to me what love is, you may have some difficulty with that because uh, you may have to think about it for a bit to adequately describe what love really is because sometimes uh, we say something is love when really what it is is lust, right? Sometimes we say uh, we're infatuated with someone and, and we call it love, but it's not love, it's really infatuation. Sometimes we call something love when really what it is is codependency or enabling. And, and, and so if we were pressed to adequately define what love is, we may have to think about it a little bit. It, it, it's a little more difficult than just kind of saying what we think um, because love sometimes is some things we don't think it is and sometimes it's something that we don't think it is. Uh, and this is what Paul does. Paul gives us a list of what love is and what love isn't. And the love that he describes uh, is not the kind of love that we have in our culture and society, right? It's not a love where uh, as long as you love me, I'll love you. That's not love. It's not the, the fickle and capricious kind of love that we have in some of our relationships where as long as this relationship benefits me, then I'll love you. It's not the kind of love that we see in some marriages where even though we stood at the ceremony and we looked at each other and we said, I'll love you through thick and thin, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others till death do us part. We didn't really mean it, right? Sometimes what we mean is, I'll love you as long as you look good. 
Sometimes in marriage, what we mean is, I'll love you as long as things are easy. I'll love you as long as things go well for me. I'll love you until the next person comes along. We're not talking about that kind of love. The kind of love we're talking about is a love that's defined and modeled by God. And we see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, uh, before we actually look at this love that Paul is talking about, this list of love, uh, I want to give you the context in which Paul is writing, okay? Uh, Paul is uh, an early church planner, and he planted churches 2,000 years ago all over the known world. Paul also wrote most of the New Testament, and what we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 13 is a letter, a section from a letter that Paul writes to the church in the city of Corinth. Now, this church in the city of Corinth is dysfunctional. This is the context in which he's writing. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, uh, some examples. It, like, it's so dysfunctional, you can make a reality TV series about it. Not, not a reality show about it, but a series about how dysfunctional this church is. Here's, here's some snippets of, of what's taking place. Uh, inside this church in the city of Corinth, uh, there's a guy who's having sex with his dad's wife right? This is Corinth, not West Virginia, okay? And so there's this guy who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And here's the thing. Everybody in the church is like, oh yeah, no big deal. And, and, and then on top of that, there's, there's some people in the church, like they can't get along. They have fights and arguments and, and they're actually suing one another over these things. Within the church, this shouldn't happen. There are some people in the church who are sleeping with prostitutes. There are other people in the church who are worshiping other gods. I mean, this church is dysfunctional. And sometimes um, I hear people say this, and, and, and maybe you're somebody who says it, maybe you know somebody who says it. Uh, people who say, see, that's why I don't like the church, because the church is just filled with hypocrites. And I'll just let you know, if you say that you've never been to a church that bad, Okay, it may have seemed that way, but you have never been to a church like the church in Corinth. And, and if you say that, I don't like the church because it's filled with hypocrites or uh, you know somebody who says that, I'll just let you know I understand because that's a, that's a big turnoff for me. That's why one of the values that we have as a church is that authenticity is essential, that, that when you come here on a Sunday morning, you should never feel like you have to wear a mask because we know you're messed up. Because we are too. So you don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to act like you have it all together. But then also what this value means is this, is that if you're a Christian, then we live out our faith throughout the week. We live out what we experience here on Sunday morning so that throughout the week, uh, if w when you tell somebody you're a Christian, somebody you work with, they wouldn't say, really? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> but instead they would say, oh yeah, no, I know. I know that you're a Christian because of how you live. I know that you're a Christian because of how you love. You practice what you preach. See, we want to be a church where authenticity is essential. But if you would say, well, I don't like the church because, you know, it's filled with hypocrites or, or whatever, I just, I just want to caution you real quick to not be so quick to judge. Because if you would say that, you're not perfect either, Okay? And if you were part of the church, you would be one of those hypocrites. Because none of us have it all together. And the reason why we're here is because we realize that. The reason why we're here is because we need God's grace in our life. And we're here because we know that it's through God's grace that he can make us into who he's calling us to be. And so that's why we're here. So if you don't like the church because it's filled with hypocrites, there's room for one more. Come on. Right? 
So this is the context in which Paul is writing. I mean, it's dysfunctional. I mean, the church in Corinth is, I probably wouldn't go to it. it it's bad. It, it, it's like, um, I, I just really want you to get how it is. It's like uh, Jerry Springer and Ricky Lake and Moy Povich and Steve Wilkos on steroids, right? Like, it is, it is so bad. And here's how blind they are to their dysfunction, right? So, uh, one of the big questions that this church has for Paul is not about the guy sleeping with his, his dad's wife or anything like that, but the question they have is this, how long should a guy's hair be? Like this is one of their concerns. They're worried about how long a guy's hair is, and they've missed the fact that some of them are sleeping with prostitutes. It's like you got bigger things to focus on. Uh, uh, another thing with them, just so you just see how blind they are to their dysfunction, is in the midst of all this mess that's going on, they're fighting with one another about who's more spiritual. It's like, none of y'all are spiritual. Everybody is messed up. And so this is the context. I don't even know where to begin to start to address some of the problems in this church, but here's where Paul does. Uh, here's, here's where he begins. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He starts, after addressing all these things that are happening with them in the first 12 chapters, he takes them to love, because love is the solution. Love is the way to overcome everything that they're dealing with. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're actually going to start in verse 12, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 31, and then we'll move to verse 13. Uh, but here's what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. He says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way, the most excellent way, the best way to live. What Paul is saying is, I'm about to show you the way to overcome all of this because love is a better way to live. And so he goes on to explain um, a bit about love. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, all of these things that Paul is talking about are good things, right? Uh, uh, speaking in other languages, serving, being generous, sacrificing, all these things are good. But Paul is saying, if I do all the good things, but I don't do the best thing, then it doesn't really matter. Really what Paul, not McCartney, but the Apostle Paul is saying is, all you need is love. No, not really. He, he, he's not saying that. Um, I thought that'd get more of a laugh in my head. Uh, <laughs> But Paul is not saying that, actually. He's not saying all you need is love. What he's saying is that we should do all these good things, yes, but they should be overlaid with love. Like the motivation, the reason why we do all the good in our life is because of love. It's not don't do anything good and just love. No, 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 no. Do the good things and overlay it with love. And so Paul goes on then to list out what love is. He says this, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. Skip down to verse 13. 
He says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Now, uh, I normally don't preach in the form uh, of a list because I find that life doesn't always happen uh, in a list fashion. But today, uh, I want to give you a bit of a, a preaching R, kind of like preaching in seminar, uh, teach you a little bit. And uh, we're going to go through this list that Paul lays out of what love is and what love isn't. And so I want to invite you to go ahead and take notes. Take out your program. And at the top section of that program, uh, would you just write, uh, love is at the top left. And right down the middle, draw a line to create two separate columns. And so love is with a line down the center. Uh, Paul says that love is patient. And so underneath where you have love is, write down patient on the left-hand side and then patience on the right-hand side. Patient on the left, patience on the right. Uh, how many of you are patient people? Okay, not many of us, right. Uh, <laughs> see, we have a lot of strong qualities in our life, but, but patience isn't always one of them. See, to be patient is to wait. Uh, it's to not act prematurely. To, to be patient is to act as though you have time. Uh, but many of us say, I never have any time. The reason we don't have time is not because there isn't time that doesn't exist, it's because we don't manage it properly. We all have the same amount of time, we just have to manage it properly. But, but many of us say, well, well, I don't have any time. And, and, and here's the thing. If you say that, you're not unique. Because everybody says that. Everybody is busy. And I just want to let you know, sometimes uh, when you ask somebody, hey, how you doing? And they say, keep it busy, busy. Being busy is not a good thing. Being busy means that your schedule dictates your life, as opposed to you dictating your schedule. And so none of us have time. We're all busy. At least that's what we would say. I think it's because we don't always manage our time well. That's a different sermon, though. Um, but I mean, think about patience. In a day and age where if our cell phone takes a little long to load, we get frustrated, right? Like, I mean, you get a brand new phone and you're like, oh man, this is the greatest thing ever. It's super fast. And then a year later, you're like, I hate this stupid thing, right? That same phone a year later, because it takes a few seconds longer to load, you hate it. And see, we, we want things that are fast. Um, and for many of us, patience is non-existent, right? If I don't get my double tall, soy, no foam, no whip, extra caramel, extra hot latte, I am going to flip out on somebody, right? Like we, we because we got to wait a little bit, we, we, our patience dwindles. And um, when it comes to patience, I think, I think what, what this means for us is that if, if we're going to have patience, then we need to understand that I'm not the center of the universe, that the world doesn't revolve around me, because here's what happens. Uh, we want what we want when we want it, and when we don't get what we want when we want it the way we want it, we flip out, right? So help me if I have to stand in this long old line. You're at Walmart, right? Come on. There are 8,000 people in the checkout, and there's three people checking out. What in the world? You're sitting in traffic. I ain't got time to sit in this stupid traffic with these stupid drivers. And listen, I don't have time to wait for your incompetence for you to finally get it because you're wasting my time. And ain't nobody got time for that. See, we get impatient when things don't go the way that we want them. I think the reason is because often what happens is we see ourselves as the center of the universe. Everything revolves around me. But to be patient is to understand that it's not about me. To be patient is to say, I can take my time. 
I can wait. I can put you ahead of me. It's not about my needs first, but I can be patient. It's understanding that the world doesn't revolve around me. Uh, Paul goes on to say this. He says that love is kind. On the, in the left section, write down kind. And in the right-hand section, write down kindness. Uh, kind and kindness. Now, uh, Paul is writing the New Testament in the Greek language. And um, the word that Paul uses for kind here is the Greek word krestates. Let me hear you say krestates. Awesome. Not much confidence there. That's all right. <laughs> but I mentioned that, that he uses this word krestates because we don't really have um, an accurate word in the English language to define what he means here by kindness. Uh, when Paul says uh, love is kind, what he's describing is a goodness inside of somebody, but it's a goodness that does something. Um, it's a goodness that I don't just feel in my heart, but because I feel this, I do something about it. I, I, I actually act upon it. So really what Paul is saying when he says that love is kind is he's saying that love does. Love is a verb. It's not good to just feel something in your heart for somebody or just wish somebody well, but it's to actually act on the feelings that you have for somebody. It's to actually do something about it. And so uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, if, I, if I say that I love my daughter, well, I need to show her that love by being kind. And sometimes the kindest thing I can do is to say no to her because I want to teach her not to be an entitled brat, right? Now, that may not seem kind at the time, but it is. To be kind sometimes is to hold somebody accountable. They said they would do something, they didn't do it. The kind thing is not to not do anything, but it's to say, hey, you said you would do this, what happened? How can I help you in the future? It, it, it's to hold somebody accountable because love does, love is an action. Uh, if I say that I love my kid, but I'm never present to their rehearsal or their practice or their games or anything like that, then I'm not showing my love through my presence. If you're dating somebody and you say that you love them, well then prove it to them by showing kindness to them, by saying we're gonna pursue purity until our marriage, and so we're gonna set up physical boundaries now. If you say that you love your girlfriend but you're feeling all over her, you're, you don't, because that's not kind. Kindness is love in action. Paul goes on to say not only is love patient, but it's kind, it's a verb. And then he says uh, that love does not envy. So in the left-hand section, I want you to write down not envy. So love is not envy. In the right-hand section, write down goodness. Goodness, so not envy and goodness. Now, uh, love is not envy. Envy is when I'm not content with myself. Envy is when I can't enjoy the good in my life because I'm so focused on what you have. Don't you know sometimes like you can be real content in your life and something you didn't even know exists, exists, and then you find out that it exists and your contentment goes away, right? Like, like I know somebody, they got a new MacBook and they're like, awesome, I've been saving up, I got this brand new MacBook. And then um, a week later, the new edition of the MacBook came out and they hated their other computer. Like, they just got it the week before, but now the newer, better, whatever, and they hate it. Like, they were content with it before, but now they're, they're envious because they don't have it. 
Uh, envy is when I get fixated uh, on what you have, when I get fixated on your stuff, your looks, your spouse, your personality, your uh, background, your privileges, when I get so fixated on your life that I can't enjoy my own life. And when I get envy, I become bitter. I become sour. Uh, but love, Paul says, does not envy. Instead, love is goodness. And goodness uh, is a personality trait that somebody has inside of them. And sometimes you can't really put words to it, but you see them and you just say, man, there's something about that person. They're just good. They're good. And here's why they're good. Because they're content with who they are. They're content with their life. They're not trying to pursue somebody else's life and to be like somebody else. Instead, they're pursuing becoming more of them. They're content with who they are. And the way that we uncover goodness and contentment in our life is to fight envy, is to realize everything we have is a gift. And it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter what I don't have, but I'm content with this, and I'm good with this. See, God has called you to be you, not them. Stop trying to pursue somebody else's life and instead find the goodness, the joy, and the gift in your own life. Paul says that love does not envy. Uh, he goes on to say that love uh, does not boast and it is not proud. And so write that down in the left-hand section. Not, boast, uh, not boastful slash not proud. And on the left uh, and, and on the right side, write gentleness. Gentleness. Now, uh, this word gentleness comes from the Greek word praotes. Let me hear you say praotes. All right, it's a little bit of Spanish flair there, right there, yeah. So, praotes, which is defined as this, gentleness, right, is having power reserved. Gentleness is having power, but it's controlled. Oftentimes when we think about gentleness, we think it means weak or wimpy, uh, but it's the opposite. Gentleness is power controlled. And so love isn't a power trip. Love doesn't boast in your position. Love isn't, um, I'm going to make you do this. See, see, you may have the power, and you could very well say, um, I'm going to make you do this, but here's what love does. Love is gentleness. Love is, I could say do it because I said so, but instead, I'm going to exercise gentleness, have my power controlled, and instead, I'm going to stoop low to serve you so that I can inspire you to do this. There's two, two different ways of looking at it. Some of you may have a boss who you would say he's on a power trip. What if instead of using his power to make you do things, he reserved that power and served you so you, inspire, you were inspired to do those things? You'd probably love working for that person even more. If you're a boss this morning, I want to encourage you to have gentleness with the people that you oversee because love is not boastful and it's not proud. Um, in the books of Luke and John in the Bible, uh, Jesus is, is having a meal with his 12 followers, his 12 disciples. And um, there's an argument that breaks out where these 12 guys who are following Jesus are, are wondering who's the greatest. Like, they're all at this table, and Jesus has said, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to raise again from the dead. And his 12 disciples, they hear that, and it's almost like, well, who's going to take his spot, right? Like, they don't even care. And so they break out into this argument about who among them is the greatest. And Jesus, the greatest person in the room, the Son of God, could have said, all of y'all shut up. I'm the greatest. He could have done that. I mean, he had the power. But Jesus was gentle. He exercised love. Here's what Jesus did. He got up from the table. He put a towel around his waist. 
and he stooped down to wash his disciples' feet. He served his disciples. He showed a great act of gentleness, which was love, and he showed them what love really is. It's not boastful. It's not proud, but it's gentle. Uh, as Paul goes on with this list, um, he says that love does not dishonor others. Now, now you don't have to write this down, uh, but I do want to cover this because as a church, we place a high value on honor. Uh, we're a church where honor flows up, down, and to the side. And here's what honor is. Honor is placing high value on something. Uh, it's giving something weight, okay? Uh, the opposite of honor is dishonor. And here's what dishonor is. To treat something as common, to treat something as ordinary, to treat something as everyday. Sometimes what we think of when we think about honor and the opposite of honor is like uh, disgracing somebody or saying something that's, that's mean or putting someone down. Sure, that's dishonor, but, but really dishonor is when we treat something as common, as ordinary, as everyday. And so for us as a church, we have a high value of honor. What that means is that we want to show honor to the people above us, to our leaders, to the people who are in authority over us. We want to show honor to the people beside us, and we want to show honor to the people who are below us in status, the people who, who we lead maybe, or the people who are low in society. We want to show honor to everybody. We want to give value and weight to everybody. I want you to think about um, somebody who you really honor, somebody you admire, right? Somebody who you really, uh, and, and respect is an honor, so, so that's a bad way to think about it, but somebody who, who you really admire. Maybe it's, maybe it's the president, uh, maybe it's your boss, uh, maybe it's uh, an actor or an actress who, who you really admire. Like, like if they walked in the door, you would stand up. You'd be like, oh, man, look at that. Part. You know, you, you, you notice their presence, somebody you honor, okay? You place great value on them. You would get excited if you saw them in the airport. You'd be like, hey, can I get a selfie, right? You, you'd be super excited about it. somebody you honor. The same weight and the same value that you would place on that person, you should place on everybody, we should place that same weight and that same value on everybody in our life. And so I want to give you a few examples uh, of honor and dishonor. If you're married, a way to dishonor your wife is to not open the door for her. And you say, wait, that's not dishonoring. I mean, she's capable of opening the door for herself. She's in front of me and all that stuff. No, that's dishonoring. Because... If that was somebody you really valued, who you didn't treat as common, you'd open the door for him, right? If it was the president of your company, you'd rush to open the door for him. Here, let me get that for you, sir. If it was the president of our country, you'd rush to open the door for him. If it was an actor or an actress that you really admire and, and looked up to, you would rush to open the door for them. Why? Because you honored them. You placed high value on them in the same way. Husbands, honor your wives. Open the door for her. And that's not just one. I mean, that's just one way that we can show honor, but there's so many other ways. Um, kids, if you talk back to your parents or you use a tone um, that is not valuing them, you dishonor your parents. You have not been called to correct your parents. You've been called to honor your parents. And so kids, the way that you talk to your parents, because listen, you would never talk to somebody you valued that way. Right? You would never talk to somebody you, you saw with great respect and admiration. So when you talk to your parents as though they're common, you dishonor them. Parents, it's the same with your kids. Like, if, if you talk to your kids like they're uh, a, a nuisance or annoying to you, you dishonor 
your kids, you're treating them as common for everybody, everybody. If you gossip about somebody, you're dishonoring them because you would never say those things to somebody you highly valued and that you cared about. And so uh, as a church, as people who follow God, we've been called to be a people of honor. For us, honor flows up, down, and to the side. And so Paul says this is what love is. Love does not dishonor. He goes on uh, to say this, that love is not self-seeking. So, so in the left-hand column, write not self-seeking. In the right-hand column, write down faithfulness. Love is not self-seeking, but it's faithful. Uh, when I'm self-seeking, that means that I look out for my own interests. If this no longer benefits me, then I'm out. I, I, I know I said I would do this, but uh, not really because it doesn't benefit me. I'm all about myself. It's self-seeking. I know I gave you my word, but uh, I'm not getting anything out of this, and so I, I'm done. It's, it, that's self seeking. Uh, but love is not self-seeking. Love doesn't ask, what can I get out of it? But love says, how can I give? Not what can I get out of it, but how can I give? And that's faithfulness. Faithfulness is this. Faithfulness is fidelity. It's staying true. Faithfulness is that you can have confidence in me because I said I would, and so I will. This is faithfulness. Faithfulness is, I know I said I'd be with you for the rest of my life, and so I will. Faithfulness is uh, I'm not in this relationship just to see how it can benefit me or how I can move to the next rung in the corporate ladder, but I'm still in this relationship with you because I care about you. I love you. Love is not self-seeking. It's faithfulness. Uh, Paul goes on to say this, that love is not easily angered. So in the left-hand section, I want you to write down not easily angered. Love is not easily angered. In the right-hand column, write down self-control. Because love doesn't fly off the handle, right? Love doesn't have a temper. Well, I got a short fuse. Well, then stop lighting your fuse. Stop getting around fires, right? Because love is not easily angered. Love isn't a jerk. Well, that's just how I am. Well, it sucks to be you then. Like, love is not easily angered. Instead, love is self-control. If somebody loses their temper, then what they're telling everyone, if you lose your temper, here's what you're saying to everybody else. I have no control, and I'm gonna allow you to control me. You ever say this? Well, he made me. No, he didn't. You chose to. Nobody can make you do anything. You choose to. And if you can't control your temper, if you don't have self-control, then what you're telling everybody else is that you control me. Really, what you're doing is you're telling everybody, I see myself as a victim, and people can make me do whatever it is they want me to do, because I have no control over myself. But love says, I love myself way too much to allow myself to be controlled by others who are outside of me. And this isn't, this isn't uh, just with anger, but it's also with things like temptation. It's with things um, like the addiction that you may battle. Love is self-control. I don't have to do this because I love myself to destroy myself too much. And so I'm going to stop this. Love is restraint. Love is saying no. Um, think two more. Paul goes on to say that, that love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And so uh, on the left-hand side, write down not a record of wrongs. And on the right-hand side, I want you to jot down peace. So the left-hand side, not a record of wrongs. On the right-hand side, peace. Let me ask you, has, has someone's name ever been brought up to you? And when you hear it, you just say, don't even get me started on that person. Because at one time they did this, 
and I've just written them off. I'm done with it. Have you ever gotten into an argument with somebody, and, and you brought up the past four times they did that one thing, like they said that, and you're like, yeah, yeah, don't you remember that one time you said at Christmas you said that, and then in February you did this, and then on March 13th, or no, it was the 14th, you did this? Like, like you, you have this record of wrongs. Like, I, I wonder, is there anybody in your life who you have a file in your mind with their name on it, and it's just filled with all the things they've done wrong? Paul says love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love isn't when we get into an argument here. Let me grab my file and pull all this stuff and throw it back at you. No, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Is there anybody who's wronged you and you've written them off because of what they did back then? Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Instead, love is peace. Love is peace. See, when we refuse to keep a record of wrongs, what we do is we forgive someone. We say, I don't hold this against you anymore. Now, I want to explain very clearly. Forgiving somebody uh, is not saying what you did is okay, because it's not okay. That was not okay. They shouldn't have done it. Forgiving somebody uh, is not saying um, we can go back to how things were, because sometimes you shouldn't go back. If he's beating you, you shouldn't go back into that house, okay? Forgiveness is not always going back, but forgiveness is saying, I don't hold this against you. There's no record of wrongs that I'm keeping. Instead, I'm, I'm, I'm letting this go. Because here's what happens. When somebody wrongs us, they take a piece of us. They, they owe us something now. And when we hold a grudge, when we have bitterness, what we're doing is we're constantly trying to get that piece back. But they can't ever give it back. They, they can't pay it back. And so they have a piece of us. When we choose to forgive, when we throw out the record, then what we do is we get that piece of us back so that we can experience peace. The word peace in Greek is the word arenye. Arenye uh, means wholeness. When someone wrongs you, they take a piece of you. When you forgive them, when you refuse to keep a record of wrongs, you get that peace back and now you're whole. How many of you know when you hold a grudge, when you have resentment, when you have bitterness, you're the one who loses? You're the one who stays up at night thinking about it. You're the one who's constantly having that person take up real estate in your mind. You're the one who doesn't have peace. Not them, but you because they have a piece of you and you're longing to get it back. But when you forgive, when you toss out the record, you say, you don't owe me anymore. The peace comes back to you and you experience peace. And so uh, Paul says love isn't a record of wrongs, but instead it's peace. Here's the last thing that Paul says. He says love does not delight with evil. And so in the left-hand column, I want you to write down, not happy with evil. Love is not happy with evil. And on the right-hand side, write down joy. And so love doesn't delight in evil. Um, and you know that feeling that you get when you hear that, um, that somebody got the promotion, got the raise or whatever, that feeling you get sometimes where you're like, oh, yeah, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> and you can't really celebrate with their success. Well, delighting in evil is the opposite of that. You know, when you hear that somebody uh, got fired or something tragic took place in their life, and inside you start to smile, and you're like, oh, I feel so bad for you. <laughs> this is delighting in evil. And listen, I'm, none of us would do that, okay? I mean, that, other people, other people. You know people who would do that. Uh, but, but love doesn't delight in evil. And, and here's the thing. If you can't celebrate somebody else's success, then God won't. God, God can't trust you with your own success. And so we need to rejoice with people when they, 
when they uh, experience success, but then we need to grieve with people when they go through hard times in life. And so Paul says it doesn't delight in evil. Instead, love is joy. We need to have joy when other people succeed. And even in the times where we experience difficulties in our life, we can still have joy because everything we have is a gift. And so Paul goes through this list explaining to the church what love is. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Translation, Paul is saying that love wins. Long before our culture hashtagged it for a campaign, long before a book was ever written with that title, 2,000 years ago, the God of the universe through the Apostle Paul is telling us that love wins. Love never fails. What he's saying is that love is a better way to live. Love is a better way to live than envy. Love is a better way to live than delighting in evil. Love is a better way to live than holding a grudge. Love is a better way to live. Love wins every time and watch this here's what I want you to see watch this watch this on the right hand section of that column look at the words that you have love is joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. He says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's what Paul is telling us, that the fruit of the Spirit, the result of the Spirit, the product that God's Spirit brings when He comes to live inside of us is all of these things. And here's the good news. If you're a Christian this morning, if you believe that Jesus died for you, you've followed him, you've been immersed into him, then the Spirit of God lives inside of you. And so inside of you right now, you have everything you need to love. You have joy, you have peace, you have patience, you have kindness, you have goodness, you have gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You have it all inside of you right now. Everything you need to love has been there the whole time. So don't tell me you don't have patience. Yes, you do. It's inside of you. It's been there the whole time. Don't tell me you don't have joy. Yes, you do. It's been inside of you the whole time. You do have self-control. You can say no to that. You don't have to go back to that. Why? Because it's been inside of you the whole time. You have everything you need to love now because the Spirit of God brings all these things inside of you today. You just got to tap into it. You just got to uncover it because the potential is there. You just got to reach in and grab it. And so for a message like this, I believe that God can take the words that I've said and tailor them to your heart today. I find it interesting that in a message like this, so many people can get so many different things from what's just been said. So I want to ask you two questions as we close. Number one is this, what is God saying to you? What is God saying to you today? Write that down. What is God saying to you? Don't write down the question, write down the answer. What is God saying to you today? The second question I have is this, what are you going to do about it? 
What are you going to do about it? What is God saying to you? What are you going to do about it? In a moment, we're going to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. How he poured out his love for us, giving his life so that we could have life, so that we could be forgiven. We're going to have some members from our greeter team come down, and they're going to pass out trays with the elements of communion. There are two stacks of cups in those trays. The bottom cup has a piece of bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The top cup has some juice that represents his blood that was shed so that we could be forgiven and have life. As we take communion, allow this to be a reminder to you of just how much God loves you. Also, allow this to be a time where you pray and you say, God, help me see what's inside of me already, that I do have love, that I do have joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And today, as we leave, God, would you help me to live these things out? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that the thing that many of us have been searching for all along is inside of us. It's been there the whole time. We have the joy that we've been longing for. We just got to tap into it. We have the patience. We have the peace. We just got to tap into it. God, we've been coming to you about the same addiction in our life over and over and over, but we have the self-control inside of us to say no. God, help us just tap into it. God, we have the faithfulness to stay in the marriage even though it's getting difficult. It's already inside of us. Help us tap into it. God, for some of us, we've allowed people to have pieces of us and we've refused to forgive. God, we have peace inside of us. Help us tap into that peace and learn to forgive so that we can live in wholeness with ourselves and refuse to allow those people to continue to control us. Whatever it is we need, God, remind us that it's already in us. It's been there the whole time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We pray you were inspired and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, sign up to serve on a team, join a group, or just find out more information on The Rising, visit us at wearetherising.com.